Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, it's so good to see you on this Resurrection Sunday. I want to invite you to find a Bible or to find your smartphone and look with me today at Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be looking together at verses 16 through 20. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. As we begin, let me say this. Every human being, every person in this room, you, me, every person on the planet, has three basic needs that we live with day in and day out. Every single one of us has somewhere to go, has someone to be, and has a need for something to do. We need somewhere to go, we need someone to be, and we need something to do. And out of those needs come three questions that persistently present themselves to us in every situation and circumstance of our lives. We are constantly asking ourselves these questions and constantly answering them, especially in those times of success and failure, in those ups and downs of life that we all experience, in those times, uh, those big life event seasons in particular, these questions come storming in and they, and they ask us to answer them. And those questions are these, where am I going? Who am I now? And what can I do? In times of success, I'm asking, where am I heading? Who am I now? And what can I do? In times of failure, I'm asking the question, where am I headed? Who am I now in the midst of this failure? And what can I do in spite of this failure? I wish it were true that once we answered these questions they would never be asked again. But the reality is they keep coming and we keep answering them time and time and time again. How we answer these questions matters because the lives we have lived when we're done living are largely going to be defined by the answers we lived giving to those questions. Where am I headed? Who am I now? What can I do? Listen, no matter how successful you, you may be in your own eyes or in the eyes of others, if you live giving the wrong answers to these questions, your life will feel like anything but a success. I love what Walker Percy, the Southern author, now passed, but the Southern author and philosopher once said, he said, you can make all A's and still flunk life. You can make all A's and still flunk life. We all want our lives to be complete. We all want our lives to be whole. We want to live strong. None of us wants to flunk life. But the strongest lives are always built consistently on the best answers to the big questions that life asks, where am I headed? Who am I now? And what 
can I do? Now, knowing these questions is one thing, and we all know them in one form or, the, or another. But getting to the right answers, getting to the, the answers that will settle those questions for us, that's quite, quite another. Paul points us to the Christians, Christian answers to these questions in this opening to his letter to the Ephesians. You see, he says in his opening that he's grateful to God for them, and he's grateful to God for their faith and their love for Christ, their love for each other, their love for the world, the people in it. But there was a problem. While the Ephesians had a genuine faith in the resurrected Christ, it seemed that their genuine faith was faltering. They seemed to feel defeated Defeated because their beloved leader, Paul, was incarcerated and facing possible death. They felt defeated because they were living in a community and in a culture that constantly put pressure on them to go back to the old lives they had come out of, or at the very least, to compromise the faith that they had come to have in the resurrected Jesus they seem to feel defeated. With Paul incarcerated, facing possible death, their own pressure, it seemed as if the cause of Christ was failing itself. And so they felt like they were failing and the questions were coming again. Where are we really headed here? Who are we now? What can we do in the midst of all this pressure? What can we do when it seems as if the cause of Jesus, this one we've given our lives to, is, is a losing cause? Life in Christ was harder than they expected it to be. And while their faith was real, it wasn't as strong as it could have been. So the strength to face life was dwindling. And so Paul prays for them. He prays specifically that they would be given a deeper, better understanding of what the resurrected Christ means and what his resurrection means for their lives now. And that's what's so fascinating to me is that Paul effectively in these opening verses of Ephesians asked God to help the Ephesians see God's post-resurrection answers to life's biggest questions. Let's hear what he has to say. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 16 through 20. Paul says, I, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you always in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, I'm praying that God might give you a growing, more profound understanding of what he has for you. Having, verse 18, the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know with certainty and conviction three realities. He said, I'm praying that you would know First, what is the hope to which he has called you? Second, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And third, what is, verse 19, the immeasurable riches or greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Now it's common, very, very common, for some to think about the resurrection of Jesus as raising more questions than it answers. But for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus answers more questions than it raises. 
Every human being and every believer needs to consider what Paul prays for in this prayer for the Ephesians, because what they needed, we still need. A firm conviction about the answers of God to the questions of life. So let's look at these three prayer requests this morning and see God's resurrection answers for the big questions of our lives. You'll notice with me first in verse 18 at the beginning, how Paul addresses the matter of destiny and the resurrection answer to the question, where am I headed? Paul says, I pray continually that you will have the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know with confidence what is the hope to which he has called you. First, Paul says that he prays that the Ephesians might know or understand that when God called them to himself in Christ, he was calling them to a specific hope or confidence about the future. Through the resurrected Christ, the matter of destiny, he's saying, has been settled. The question about our life's direction and its end are answered. In the uh, January 2020 issue of The Atlantic Magazine, Emily Booter published a story about the last days of a man by the name of Herbert Finnegrat, who had for 40 years been professor of philosophy at the University of Southern California at Santa Barbara. For 40 years, he had loved answering the question of destiny. He loved answering it. He taught on it. He loved answering it for himself. He loved answering the question of destiny for others. In fact, he wrote a book in 1996 entitled Death. He argued that fearing your own death was irrational. When you die, he wrote, there, there's nothing. Why, why should we fear the absence of being when we won't be there ourselves to suffer it? Why should we fear death when we won't feel it once we're dead is basically what he's asking. 20 years later, 20 years later at the age of 97 and facing his own death, he realized he'd been living with the wrong answer. You know, it strikes me it's easy to be confident about everybody else's destiny. It's very, very different to face the end of your own life and ask yourself, where am I headed? Death frightened Finnegrat. And the brilliant man couldn't think himself out of his fear. At age 97, he wondered whether he had deceived himself about the meaning of life and about the meaning of death. He said, and I quote, it haunts me. The idea of dying soon, whether there's a reason or not, for all of this life, I walk around often and ask myself, what's the point of it all? What's been the point of these 97 years? What's been the point of all of my teaching, of all of my answers, of all of my coming and my going? I mean, what's the point of it all? There must be something, he said, I'm missing. And then, sadly for me to hear this, he said, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish I knew. 
I can't find the answer to the question of where I'm headed. Finnegrad died in 2018. He had the right question. He just could not find a lasting, settled answer. And he's not alone. Did you realize, do you know, probably not, we're so used to it, we are the first culture in human history to have no settled answer to the question of destiny. In other words, as a culture, we have no agreed upon answer as to where it is we're going. We don't know anymore. Every culture that came before us had an answer to that question. We have no answer. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what the future of our lives is, the eternity of our lives is, if there is an eternity. We don't know what the future of our species is. We just don't know. Many of us try to avoid the question or we try to answer it as Finnegret did and say, when you die, then there's nothing. We aren't sure why we're here. We aren't sure where we're going. But as Finnegrad discovered, this makes it hard to know what the point of life really is. And so we go to the beach. Because at least at the beach, with all that great seafood, the warm sand and the waves, we don't have to think about where it is we're going. And we act like it's enough to already be there. Paul's first prayer request gives us God's answer to the question of destiny. And he says, essentially, life here is meant to be lived looking beyond it to a life elsewhere. And so he prays that the Ephesians might know more fully, he says in verse 18, the hope or the confidence to which God has called them. This calling that Paul refers to is God's personal invitation to a life and a future made whole through the crucified and resurrected Christ, to be sure. But there's more here. The call of God through Christ is ultimately and actually to himself. This is what the Ephesians needed to understand deeply and needed to understand well. well. God's call is a call to return to him. And it is at the same time an offer of himself to them. He offers himself not only, watch this, as, their, as the origin of their lives and the point or the purpose of their lives, but also as the end or the goal of their lives. In the resurrected Christ, he is their hope. He is their destiny. To be sure, returning to God himself is the final destiny, though, of all humanity. The Bible affirms that again and again and again. Paul tells the Romans that all things and all people come from him and all things exist through him. We depend on him for the life we have and all things one day are going to return back to him. Revelation affirms that in the end, we all have a date with our destiny. We all have a date with the God who is our destiny, the one who made us, created us, put us on this planet. One day we have a date with him. One day a date is set when we will stand before him. And one day we will give an account of the lives that we've lived. 
to return to God now in the resurrected Christ, by faith in the resurrected Christ, is to return to him as the true purpose of life and as the goal of life. And when you do, it makes all the difference. It settles the question of your destiny. It settles the question of where it is you're going. It settles the question of what your life is for. And this returning to God now, before you return to him later, brings hope because a return to him now in Christ assures an eternity with him later. Revelation speaks of two resurrections coming one day so that this destiny might be fulfilled. One is a resurrection to life and the other is a resurrection to judgment. And it will all depend upon what we've done with the one who was resurrected so that we might be Jesus. Believers can have a confident conviction about their future and where their lives are ultimately headed, regardless of the pressures of the present. God's promise is that one day he will raise them like Christ in an incorruptible body and will give them eternal life with himself. Now, left to ourselves, we human beings think the best answer to the question of our destiny is the choice that we make to go somewhere different or to do something more with our lives here. Our destiny is up to us and it's limited to these, I don't know, 80 years we get, maybe 97 if you're Henry Finnegrad. But the resurrection shows us that our true destiny actually reaches much further. God himself is the destiny we all have. He is the answer to the questions, why am I here and where am I going? We were made for him. All things are headed back to him. And one day we will all stand before him to give an account of the lives we've lived. And whether you and I spend eternity in his presence or apart from it depends on what we do in response to his call to return to him by faith in the resurrected Jesus. So Paul's prayer shows that the destiny and purpose of our lives are never something like we think. The destiny and purpose of our lives is someone. And when you grasp that, when you understand that, particularly as a follower of Christ, that he doesn't call you to something, but he calls you to someone. He calls you to himself. Suddenly your destiny comes to be settled. For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He is reliable, always good, always loving. And when you know and own that to be your destiny, it changes the way you live and face success and failure here today and now. Notice with me a second thing that Paul prays for. Paul addresses the matter not just of destiny, but he goes on to address the matter of identity and the resurrection answer to the question, who am I? Who am I? Paul says, I pray continually that you will, verse 18, have the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know with confidence, with certainty, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. 
Here, Paul says that he prays that the Ephesians might know or understand that when God called them to himself and they came to him in Christ, their identity changed. Who they were changed. They became his people, saints, or people set apart for him and his fellowship and his use. What they were worth became clear. They became to God the riches of his glorious inheritance. And from this point forward, this means that they had a good answer for themselves and anyone else who would ask the question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Not too long ago, I was in another city on a trip and I was buying groceries And we had just arrived and I was tired and I had a million and one things on my mind. I mean, I was just getting it done. You ever get in that mood where you're just checking boxes off and you're not really thinking? Sometimes (laughs) your biggest mistakes are made when your mind is too full and you're you're just in get it done mode. You ever been there? Just get it done mode, just get it done. That was me. I was away, I was out of town. I was at a Harris Teeter and I was getting it done. And I had my basket and there were long lines and I was waiting and, you know, inevitably when you choose the line you think is shortest, it turns out to be the longest and your mind just gets fuller. And so there I am. Finally, it was my turn and and, uh, the conveyor belt was running and the cashier was waiting and I picked up my basket and I set it on the conveyor and let it roll on. I just wasn't thinking. I, I was, my mind was full. I was just glad to finally see her. I was just glad to finally have her attention. So I stick my basket on the conveyor belt. It rolls up to her and I, I was tired. My mind was full, but I, I was still kind. I was still kind. I always try to always be kind, even when my mind's full and I'm going to 200 miles an hour. And I looked at her name tag and her name tag was Regina. And I said, Regina, how's Regina today? She was not kind to me in return. (laughs) And initially I thought, well, she's just having a bad day. So I stood there with my mind going at 200 miles an hour full with a million and one things, wanting to get through there and get this box checked off, but trying to be kind at the same time. And so I said, well, she's just having a bad day. And then I started to notice she was taking things out of my basket. And I thought, what is your problem? And she kept doing it. And then suddenly she looked up at me and she said, where are you from? (laughs) I thought, what does that have to do with anything? I said, North Carolina. And she looked back down at their conveyor belt. I thought, who do you think you are? She finally got my bag packed and I looked at her straight in the eyes and I said, Regina, and smiled real big. I said, Regina, you have a a nice day. She did not smile back. (laughs) About 30 minutes later, it hit me. When she asked me where I was from, she was trying to be nice, to say, you must be from some crazy place where people don't unload their own baskets. But what she was really asking me was, 
who do you think you are making my job so much harder? And of course, she was right. And I want you to know, uh, publicly, I'm making this declaration that from this point forward, no matter how busy I am, how many things I have on my mind, how much stress I'm under, I will never, ever, ever, ever again take my basket and set it on a conveyor belt and send it to the cashier if her name is Regina. (laughs) Now, Here's here's the reality. We may live in a culture where destiny is unknown, but we live in a culture where identity is king. Who do you think you are or who am I? This is the question of questions. Identity, of course, has to do with the distinguishing characteristics of a person, what makes them distinct from others and gives them value. If ours is the first age to have no sense of of identity, ours is also the first age to be absolutely obsessed with identity. We're always trying to find out who we are. And the cultural answer to this question is to look inside ourselves, decide who we are, and then assert it regardless of what anyone else thinks. The problem, of course, with this is it's impossible. It does not work. We want and we need others to help us know who we are and who we aren't and what we're worth. We're never going to know who we are just by looking inside and deciding. It's just never enough. Try it if you want to. It is just never enough. To have a settled identity, we need someone from the outside who can look in and tell us what they see. Even more, we need someone who loves us, someone that we trust, someone that we respect to see us and tell us the truth about who we are and what we're worth. Paul's second prayer request gives us God's answer to the identity question. Who we are and what we're worth is not a matter of what we choose, but rather a matter of what God sees when he sees us. And this is why the Ephesians need to know and be convinced that they are themselves in Christ, what Paul calls the riches of his glorious inheritance. God finds his riches or God finds his wealth in those who are his as a result of what the resurrected Christ has done. This is the sum of their true identity. So Paul is praying that the Ephesians will grasp fully how God sees them and what he thinks of them. God sees you now, Paul says, as his treasure. Now, this might seem odd, and it is odd if you think about it, that the God who already has everything and needs nothing would see those who have faith in Christ as his riches or as his inheritance. What he gets from the work Christ has done and what he gets from what Christ has done are people. That what, that God is able to see any person this way is really hard for us to conceive, especially when we're honest about the human condition. Think about it. None of us is flawless. We all have failures. The Bible says no one is righteous. No, not one. And so this declaration of people as his glorious inheritance is, is really strange indeed. Even those he calls saints are just pardoned rebels who truth be told are still struggling with themselves and with sin. And so 
How can it be that God would see his people this way with such incredible value and worth? But at the heart of it is, is this truth. While we completely abandoned him and went our own way, while we said to him at the fall and have said ever since, I don't want you anymore. He never completely left us. Made in his image, loved from the beginning. He never stopped choosing to love us. He never said, I don't want you anymore. I, I, can't, I can't imagine any more painful words for human ears to ever hear than to hear the words, especially from someone who loves them or loved them, I don't want you anymore. But the fact that he never said that is seen in the cross. I love the way Jesus explained it. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, no. But he sent his son into the world in order that the world might be saved through him. We said to him, we don't want you anymore. We say to him, we don't need you anymore. And God says to us, I don't need you either, but I still want you. And what is so powerful, so telling, is that after the resurrection, God's view of us and his sense of our worth to him simply became greater. He sees even more in us now to love than he did before. Why? Well, because of the price Christ paid for the sins of sinners out of love for the world. There is this breathtaking post-resurrection truth here that the Ephesians and every believer needs to see and remember about themselves. When God sees believers, he doesn't just see who they are. He doesn't just see what they've done to him, but he looks past these things and sees instead who Christ is for them and what Christ has done for them. And consequently, when God measures the worth of his people, he uses Christ's perfect life and cross death, the price he paid for us by his son as his measure. He loved us before, but when we come to faith in Christ, he treasures us now because of the incredible price his son paid so that we might. Ask me how much I'm worth apart from Christ and I'll show you my bank account or my portfolio or my, my accomplishments or whatever. I can take you to a, an old yearbook at West Forsyth High School and show you an article about me that says born leader. Nobody but me knows it's there. 
but ask me in Christ who I am and what I'm worth. And I'll point you to the cross. We human beings like to think that our identities rest in what we choose them to be. We like to believe that we can say, I'll tell you who I am. I'll tell you what I'm worth, but it never works. For we can't find a convincing witness to who we are and what we're worth to actually confirm it. But God is the best of witnesses to who we are and what we're worth. He sees us as no one else can. He loves us as no one else will. He shows us who we really are and in Christ. He shows us who we can be and what we can finally be worth. He offers a new restored life linked to the resurrected Jesus. And when we receive it by faith, we become to him. And this is, this is stunning when you start to put your head around it. We become to him the greatest being in the universe, a personal eternal treasure. Ask me what I'm worth and I'll ask you to let God tell you what I'm worth. What ultimately determines who we are is not what we choose but what God chooses to do in Christ for us and what we do with Christ in response. And so Paul's prayer shows that the Father's view best decides who we are. Not mine, not yours, his. Who are you? What are you worth? Who told you? Who told you? Notice with me finally how Paul addresses the matter of life's Potential And the resurrection answer to the question, what can I do? Paul says, I pray continually that you will have the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Finally, Paul says that he prays that the Ephesians might know or understand that when God the Father called them to himself and made them his own people of great worth, he also came with great power into their lives. The very same power, Paul says in verse 20, that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. And what this means is that through the resurrected Christ, the matter of potential has been settled as well as the matter of identity and destiny. The matter of the question of what we can do with our lives is finally settled. Potential, of course, has to do with power, the capacity, the ability to bring about change, especially good change. Potential is also understood as the ability to make a difference that matters. And so we say things like she has great potential. She can make a positive difference for herself or for others. Most often we humans use what we think we can do to measure the significance that we think we can have. The problem, of course, is that we have limits to what we can do and even the good things we do in the end can be undone by others. Every business we build, 
will one day be handed over to someone else who may tear it down. Every engine we repair will have to be repaired again. Every student we teach and take to a new level is eventually handed off to another teacher who may or may not help. Every kindness we show, no matter how beautiful, can be undone. And so our potential for good is limited and temporary at best. But for one final time, Paul points us to God's better resurrection answer. And he says, our true potential and significance are found not in what we can do, but in the power that God has ready to share in us. And so Paul prays the believers will know what is the immeasurable, he says, verse 19, greatness of his power toward us who believe. God's unlimited power demonstrated and in the resurrection is what God has and uses in and for those who are his. It's his powerful presence in them that gives his people a potential they can't have on their own. And so he wants the Ephesians facing all that they're facing to grasp more fully the fact that the unlimited quality of the strength of God has and is a strength that God uses for them and God uses in them. This great power at work in them gives a new answer to the question of what they can do and the difference they can make. Paul says God's own power is at work in you. Paul himself is convinced of this. And so he can say, for example, to the Philippians that regardless of what he faces in life, he knows that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens or empowers him. He says, I'm so convinced that the same power God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the power he uses to strengthen me that I have learned by that conviction that in whatever situation I am, I can be content. I know how to be now brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned because of the power of the resurrected Christ at work in me, I have learned this to be the secret. I can face plenty and I can face face, uh, hunger. I can face abundance and I can face need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can persevere. I can endure whatever life brings to me by the power of God. I can make progress under pressure. I can stand and not be moved. I can press forward when everything is pressing backward against me in all things. I can be strong. This is the final measure of what believers can do with life. We human beings assume that our potential, what we can do and the difference we can make is up to us. But God's answer is that our true potential is up to him. It is up to the degree to which we allow his resurrection power to work in and through us. His power, not ours, is the defining element in our potential for living in the ups and downs of life. His unlimited resurrection power at work in us is the best, most satisfying answer to the questions, what can I do? What difference can I make? And Paul's prayer shows that the Father's power is what determines our true potential. 
doesn't matter what I can do. It matters what God can do through me. Everything you and I need to truly live, answering the big questions of life we have in the resurrected Christ. In him, we can have settled answers to life's biggest questions. We can live knowing where we're going with confidence. We can live knowing who we are with joy. We can live knowing what we can do with humility. We can live strong in all the seasons of life. To believe, as the Ephesians did, that God sent his son Jesus to live a sinless life, die a substitutionary death, and rise from the dead, all for sinners, so that those who repent and trust in Jesus are forgiven of their sins, given a new life like his, and have eternal life. This is the necessary first step to answering life's biggest questions. But like the Ephesians, we've got to go on with God's help to see and understand what the resurrection of Jesus really means. If you don't understand this fully, like the Ephesians, you'll struggle through the ups and downs of this life and miss what God has for you. Now, you will not be able to live strong. Not too long ago, Cheryl and I were in Dallas visiting uh, with our grandsons while their parents went away. It's an agreement we have. They go away, we stay. It works out for everybody. The kids, uh, we get to know them better without the parents around. We hear stuff. (laughs) They get a break from the kids. And so we enjoy doing that. We went and uh, I got the assignment, the happy assignment of uh, putting Sellers, my uh, five-year-old grandson, he was four at the time and now five, to bed. And his, his regular practice is to read from his Bible storybooks before he goes to bed and pray, which I'm all for and so I love doing it. And the first night I... Uh, Crawled into bed with him and he showed me all his Bible story books. He has four and he's so proud that he has four Bible story books all stacked up by his bed. And he looked at me and he said, Papa, he said, I love Jesus so much. And I said, that's so good, Sellers. And he said, I want a thousand Bible books. I said, that's really good. There's some ambition for a little guy that can't read. A thousand Bible books. He wants a thousand of them because he loves Jesus so much. I said, that's good, Sellers. I said, all right, well, let's read before you go to bed tonight. And he said, okay. I said, well, what do you want to read? He said, I love the story of David and Goliath. Well, he's all boy. Okay, we'll we'll read this story. We read this story. I said, what else do we want to read? He said, I don't know. I got a lot of favorites. I said, well, let's read one about Jesus. He said, okay. And we read the story of how Jesus helped a, a blind man to see. And then I turned to him and I said, Sellers, why don't we read the greatest story there is in the whole Bible. He said, what is that? I said, it's the story of when Jesus died. All the air went out of the room. (laughs) He looked at me, his face changed, his eyes welled up with tears. And he looked at me and he said, Papa, Jesus died? 
He was shocked. I was shocked. <laughs> we were both shocked. I looked into those little eyes filled up with tears and I had this extraordinary encounter with the faith of a child. Now, I don't know what happened. I don't know if he just wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I don't know how he missed it. I, I, I don't know how he missed it. Maybe this was the first time he understood it. I just, I don't know. But because Papa is a pastor, then all things spiritual coming from me are gospel. When I said Jesus died, it meant Jesus was dead. And he did not know what to make of that. It was like I was watching his little life implode. He was devastated. And suddenly I felt awful. But knew exactly what I needed to do. I did not have time find the resurrection story in that Bible story book. So I said, oh, but wait, 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 sellers, wait. I said, Jesus did die. He had to die for our sins to take them away. But I said, sellers, there's more to the story. I said, three days later, The father raised Jesus from the dead and now he lives. And I'll never forget what Sellers said to me. His whole face changed again and he looked at me and he said, Papa, he said, that is so good for me. That is so good for me. And he is right. Good for him. So good for his papa. So good for you. So good for me. Because that resurrection settles the matter of where we're going, of who we are, and what we can do and what we will do for eternity if our lives belong to this resurrected Jesus. So, So I have to end this message by asking you, where are you headed? Do you know? There is a date with destiny 
Is you're scheduled for the first resurrection or the second? Will you meet him as a father or will you meet him as a fair and righteous judge who will give to those who meet him everything they deserve? Do you know where you're headed? Do you know who you are? Really? Are you depending on someone else to tell you or some success to tell you who you are? Who decides in your life what you're worth? Do you decide by the number of times you get life right and the number of times you get life wrong? Who decides what you're worth? Your spouse? Their acceptance? Their approval? Who decides your identity? What have you learned so far about what you can do and what you can't? I'm sure you don't want to flunk life. But your ability to live is limited unless God, by His great power, by His great grace and mercy, comes to dwell in your life in the presence of His Spirit by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. What are your answers to life's biggest questions? How you live will be driven by the answers you give. How you end will be driven by those same answers. For some here on this resurrection morning, For some of you today, you've been getting the answers wrong. And there's no condemnation or criticism from me. My story is the same as yours. It's not until you meet the risen Jesus that you start getting the answers right. Have you not heard about him secondhand, but have you come to know him personally? The scripture says that happens when we own our sin and confess it, turn from it, and admit we need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. We need someone greater to do what we cannot do. Sinless, pure, to be what we could not be to die the death we deserve to die and in taking our place, give us new life. You may have heard that story. In fact, every person in this room probably has. I'm glad you've heard it, but I'm I'm wondering, have you built your life on it? Can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt, He knows me, 
And I know him because I have given him all of my life. If not, all of your answers, even in your straight-A life, will mean in the end you flunk. Nobody wants to flunk life or eternity. I know in your heart that you know you were made for him, meant for him. My prayer for you is that you will come to know how much you need him and how much he loves you. If there's any question, look at the cross. That is his invitation. He says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. I have rest for you. So with heads bowed and eyes closed all across the room, I want to invite you to consider your destiny, where you're headed, your identity, who you are, your potential, what you can do. And if you're a follower of Christ, I want to challenge you to examine your life right now in light of the resurrection to see how faithful you're being to him who has called you. But in particular today, I want to speak to those of you who know that though you have heard of Jesus, know about Jesus, The reality is you don't know him personally, nor does he know you as his own. If today you will repent, if you will turn from your life built on pursuing self, you say, how do you know I'm doing that? Because I did it. We all do it. We've all done it. It is our human condition. But if you'll turn from that and receive what God has done for you on the cross to take away your sin and offer you forgiveness, that is exactly what he will do. And in this moment, it simply means that you cry out to him and say, oh God, what you have done in Christ by his death on the cross for my sin, I need for you to do for me. I confess my sin. I ask you to forgive me. And I receive your son, not just as my savior, but as owner of my life, king of it all. I want him to answer my life's big questions. Because here's the truth, I can't get them right. Lord God, hear the prayers of those who need you. Hear the prayers of those who right now are seeking you. Hear the prayers of those for whom 
Salvation is not far away, but near. Father, as they have confessed their sin and confessed that Jesus died for them and confessed that he lives, even now, I'm grateful, Father, that you've kept your promise and by your spirit come into their lives with settled answers for their life's questions. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.